everyone, it's Jennifer Harvey Salam from Intergifted. I'm back with a new episode of Conversations on Gifted Trauma. Today we're going to be exploring the topic of intergenerational and collective traumas and how they affect our giftedness growing up and long into adulthood. To have this conversation, I invited an important person in the gifted field who I know has a very deeply moving personal story of growing up gifted in a context of intergenerational and collective trauma. For those of you who don't know Mark Smolowitz, he is a multi-award winning independent filmmaker in the US. He's also a director, producer, executive producer, and the founder and CEO of the film company 13th Gen. 13th Gen makes social issue films, and the one my listeners are probably most familiar with is the G Word film. Yes, G for gifted, of course. The film is currently in post-production and expected to be out in 2023. It's a groundbreaking film that explores the mythology around what it means to be gifted in the 21st century. If you haven't checked it out yet, be sure to go to thegwordfilm.com and find out how you can support the project. I structured today's conversation a bit differently than the other podcast episodes because I wanted listeners to have the opportunity to hear Mark's full story without my interruption. His story goes from being raised by a mother and grandparents who were the only Holocaust survivors of his family line to coming out as gay in his teens, to finding early success as a filmmaker, to losing countless friends and mentors in the AIDS pandemic, and also nearly dying of AIDS himself when he was in his 30s. He went through, in other words, and to oversimplify, intergenerational trauma through his family line and collective trauma as a gay man during the height of the AIDS crisis. We'll hear Mark speak for the first 30 minutes or so of the conversation about his story, and then we open up the discussion between the two of us to explore how listeners can use Mark's story as an inspiration for reaching out, for connecting with community, and for healing their own intergenerational and collective traumas. For those of you who are unfamiliar with intergenerational trauma, it's sometimes called transgenerational trauma or multigenerational trauma. It describes how traumatic experiences that happen to parents get passed on to children through biology, through behavior, mentally, emotionally. The children in turn pass it on to their children and those children pass it on to their children until somebody breaks the cycle. This can happen when violent crimes, assault, harassment, abuse, acts of war, terrorism, occupation, genocide, economic instability, depression, extreme poverty, natural disasters, slavery, domestic or child abuse, neglect. When these things happen and leave their mark on the individual, it changes their biology and therefore changes their children's biology. It also changes their behavior toward their children. Some of the symptoms of intergenerational trauma include lack of trust, anger, frustration, or irritability, insecurity and poor self-esteem, anxiety and depression, difficulty trusting others, and an unreasonable fear of injury or death. Collective trauma is sometimes called historical trauma, and it's related to intergenerational trauma in the sense that oftentimes the things that are traumatic to individuals are also traumatic collectively. So war, group ideologies, for example, colonialism, patriarchy, group oppression, systemic racism, extreme wealth inequality. However, we differentiate between intergenerational and collective trauma to point to what happens when groups become traumatized. We see this right now with the Black Lives Matter movement. We see this with the Ukrainian people. We see this with women under patriarchy. We see this with gifted people in a non-gifted society. In other words, when a group is traumatized, the group members can become identified with that collective trauma and thus be stuck there if the group itself doesn't get healing and justice. 
We're currently going through a collective trauma with the ecological emergency, political instability, and the drastic societal change we're living through. With where we are collectively right now, it's essential that we understand both what intergenerational trauma is and collective trauma, that we recognize it, that we educate ourselves about it, and that we're taking active steps to heal it in the present. A lot of where we're at societally and a lot of where we're at as gifted people is because of the past and the things that we've been through individually and collectively and through our generational line. There's a lot more I could say on the subject, but I will leave it there and let the conversation with Mark guide you in tuning into this level of trauma and how it might have affected you and still be affecting you as a gifted adult. Mark's story is very inspiring and he has great wisdom on how we can face the intergenerational traumas from our family line and how we can heal from both intergenerational traumas and collective traumas. As always, you'll find show notes and our list of resources on our podcast page at intergifted.com slash conversations dash gifted dash trauma. And I hope this episode will be as nourishing and inspiring for you as it has been for me in making it. Thank you so much to Mark for joining me on this exploration and above all for being so generous in sharing his story and his heart and all he does for empowering the gifted community. Welcome, Mark, to the podcast. Very happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here, Jennifer. So as we talk about these themes of collective and intergenerational trauma, I wanted to invite you here to have an open discussion about it, but to share your personal story, because you have a really moving and poignant personal story on how the intergenerational trauma and collective trauma that your family line was involved in affected you and your giftedness expression. Out there in the world, at least to my knowledge, you're not going to find resources that talk specifically about giftedness expression and intergenerational trauma, how that affected giftedness expression. I'm not an expert on intergenerational trauma, but I still wanted to open the gifted specific discussion for anybody who you know, has gone through these things and may not understand what's going on for them and may not ever think to pinpoint it to trauma along the family line or collective traumas or people who are aware that they've experienced those things, but haven't yet connected it to their giftedness. Sure. So a really important point about my personal story is that I'm Jewish and that my mother and my grandparents on my mother's side were Holocaust survivors from Poland. So they survived the Holocaust. They went to Israel in 1950. They spent about six, seven years in Israel as refugees starving and were finally able to make it to America in 1957 through complicated circumstances and landed in Brooklyn, New York. And I grew up with Yiddish and Polish and Hebrew in my house. I have very little recall of any of those languages, but they're kind of in my spirit. They're kind of in my bones, in my DNA, as we say. And that history of the Holocaust narrative in my family has been a huge part of my story. So the way that I describe it is that before the war in Poland, there were 3 million Jews. After the war, there were 30,000 Jews. And three of those 30,000 Jews were my mother, my grandmother, and my grandfather. For purposes of everyone leaning into Yiddish, I called them Bubby and Zadie. So grandmother was Bubby and grandfather was Zadie. Um, my mother's name was Lily. They're all deceased. And, you know, the Holocaust sort of narrative that kind of came down from them was actually really pretty transparent and supportive. You hear a lot about children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors who struggle with the fact that their parents were, you know, not well or their grandparents were not well. And there was a lot of anger and residual trauma that made family 
life in America very difficult for these children and grandchildren of survivors. That wasn't really my story. My Bubby and Zadie and my mother were very open, very talkative, told us a lot about what happened, and did so in ways that I felt were pretty supportive. My sister and I were kind of the miracles, you know, of our family because we were born in America. And, you know, what had happened to them was that Bubby and Zadie, between them, had 18 siblings. All of them and all of their husbands and wives and all of their children all perished in Auschwitz. So by sheer luck and a series of historical events in Warsaw and Łódź in Poland, my family was not deported to Auschwitz. And so there's more to that that we probably don't have time to get into today. And there's all these sort of things that kind of get confused when Holocaust survivors are telling you their story. And then there's kind of like actual historical record of what people who are historians say happened. And I often found that the way that my mother and grandfather shared their memories was really peppered by how they remembered things, you know, and their flashpoints in them in their narrative. Was it the right year? Where were they exactly? I mean, God only knows, right? So, but my mother was born inside the Warsaw Ghetto. She was smuggled out by a Christian doctor. There apparently were networks of doctors who were helping to save Jewish babies and toddlers because all Jewish children were to be taken by the Nazis and killed. You know, that was sort of a decree for the Nazis. So my mother was saved, but she was placed with a Christian family in Woods, and they had nine other children. They dyed my mother's hair red. They changed her name. They took her to church every Sunday, and she had no idea that she had Jewish parents. You know, she just thought she was the ninth or tenth child of this family, and began her life there. So my mother's trauma was likely huge, right? Because here she's like this baby and toddler being sort of tossed through this experience, right? And without even having any kind of understanding of what was happening to her. Um, we refer to what happened to her. She was a hidden child. So there have been you know, many stories told about all the hidden children of the Holocaust. By way of sort of sidebar, I'm actually making a documentary called Lonely Child, which is sort of a, a hidden children's narrative, not my mother's story, but another woman's story. So this is hugely important to me, right? The sort of Holocaust remembrance, Holocaust awareness, making sure that right now um, we're at a moment where we're losing the last living Holocaust survivors because they're all in their 90s. Once they're gone, we don't have any first-person testimony left to sort of verify that those traumatic things happened, right? That these genocidal things actually occurred. And so I'm very interested in what happens to that trauma or what happens to those events when they are no longer actually attributed to someone's personal lived experience, but become only memory and become only history. And so there is a really powerful burden on the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren. We see this in the movement, actually, of um, to create more awareness among great-grandchildren of Holocaust survivors who are, you know, had the for good fortune of knowing their great-grandparents survivors. My nieces never knew Bubby and Zadie. Bubby died before they were born. Zadie died not long after they were born. So they never had that personal connection to my grandparents. So everything that they know has been told to me to them by my parents, me, and my sister. And so how those memories get sort of transferred and logically explained, they start to lose clarity, right, over the generations. But that doesn't mean that the trauma loses clarity or the trauma loses some kind of power. 
So there has been a lot of research and there's a lot of evidence that there is intergenerational trauma that sort of lives and resides in the cells of the descendants of people who've been through trauma. So I believe strongly that I have that trauma all over my body, in my cells, in my DNA, that what Bubby and Zadie and my mother went through had a huge impact on me. I was born and I live with that every day. And how that sort of played out in my story, I would say the most sort of challenging piece of it as a gifted child was really the perfectionism narrative. I interpreted and internalized a narrative that was never told to me by Bubby and Zadie and mom at all. But this was what I took from it, um, which I think is also a sort of signifier of my giftedness, is that I always had this heavy awareness that if all those people perished in the, in the concentration camps, and my Bubby and Zadie survived, and I have the gift of life here in the United States in this very privileged place, I got to do something with that. I mean, in, in one way, it was sort of very good and very empowering because it gave me a sense of purpose. That child that I was was not sitting on his hands wasting time. You know, <laughs> he was deeply, deeply involved in many, many things. I'm expressing his gifts at a very early age. And my gifts sort of manifested in very positive external attributes like leadership and the arts. You know, I wasn't a math science gifted person. I was a language arts and leadership gifted person. Those were really, really my sort of sweet spots. But I really was one of those children that everything I touched turned to gold. I was good at everything. You put something in front of me and I was extremely high achieving. I tested well. I got into those programs and I then flourished in those programs. I'm sort of like when it goes right, you know, I came out of gifted education in the 1970s in the public schools when it was well-funded and it was robust. I was very middle-class. So I sort of point to that as an interesting piece of the story. You know, I don't think I had this sort of self-awareness as a child to understand that, you know, maybe what happened to Bubby and Zadie and mommy was gonna, you know, have a negative effect on me in a sort of deeper way. And those challenges started to manifest more in adolescence. And the sort of first big one, as you can imagine, was the self-awareness that I was gay. And being gay was, for me, this point of imperfection that was really about how could I let my family down by being gay? Because then I can't continue the lineage of the Jewish people. No one said that, but... When you're a very smart kid, you make meaning out of things. And I was extremely interested in history. I was, you know, an avid reader, an avid consumer of the news very early. My parents thought I was so funny. I, I tell this funny story where when the Iran hostage crisis happened during the Carter administration, there was a new news show that came on at 1130 at night called Nightline to tell the daily story of the Iran hostage crisis. And I negotiated with my parents to be able to stay up to watch Nightline <laughs> every night so I could be informed about what was going on in the world. I mean, when you're a very smart child, yeah. you know, who's high achieving comes to you and says, mommy and daddy, I want to watch the news every night at 1130 <laughs> about war and conflict. You know, like, how are they going to say no to that? I was a very, very good kid. I was an A++++ student. They had nothing to worry about, right? So when you are that high performing, the moments of imperfection, when they kind of emerge, are extremely traumatic and extremely problematic and very, very hard to face. And so as a teenager, the gay narrative was really hard for me 
how could I be gay? How could this be, mm. be possible? Because I'll never be able to perpetuate the Jewish people. I was the last son in my family. I know I took that forward into my 20s in a pretty significant way. I was extremely successful in my 20s. I was a rock star film professional. I was top 30 under 30 in San Francisco Magazine. I had my own company. I was an entrepreneur at age 26. I was rocking and rolling in the 1990s. That was a great decade for me, and it was a great decade to be in San Francisco. And I, I benefited from that timing tremendously. And then something happened in my late 20s, early 30s, where I got AIDS. And getting AIDS was devastating. It was more than I could take. My response to it was very, very self-destructive. I sort of put it in a box. I didn't tell anybody about it. And I went for years keeping it a secret because I was so, so ashamed of how could I let this happen to me? So the gay thing was sort of one thing in my teens that was really worked out beautifully in my 20s. And then AIDS happened in my late 20s and early 30s. And I was supposed to be the generation that, you know, knew about safe sex. I was supposed to be the generation that you knew how not to get infected. And it happened anyway. And I always tell the story, it's not like I was out there having unsafe sex with everybody in San Francisco. But the nuances of how that virus was transmitted from one person to another were pretty complicated. And, you know, as we've seen with COVID, which is also a deep trauma that we're all living through. You know, the HIV AIDS pandemic was a hugely traumatic thing for me. Number one, I had lost all the gay men who were the generation before me who could have been my mentors, right? right? So we're writing the story of being gay again for the first time. We had very few gay elders. When I landed in San Francisco in my 20s, I kind of clung to the few men that were in their 30s and 40s that had not been impacted by HIV in the 80s, that managed to be living and surviving thus far in the early 90s. And quite a few of them are still my friends and mentors, I would say, to this day. And many of them did survive, but the vast majority of our community was decimated. So I, when I arrived in San Francisco in 1990, I arrived into a graveyard. And that affects you as a young person. At the same time, I also arrived in San Francisco in a moment when activism was like exploding. So I was a part of ACT UP. I was a part of Queer mm -hmm. Nation. For your listeners who don't know what ACT UP and Queer Nation were, these were civil disobedience-based groups that were really trying to change the world in every sense. ACT UP was focused on AIDS. It was the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. It started in New York, it kind of came to San Francisco, and then there were chapters all over the world in the 80s and 90s that were fighting the good fight to make sure we had access to medications, that people didn't die, and that we were not killed by stigma and discrimination and prejudice. And the AIDS movement, which I became a huge part of, really defined me. So I was facing that trauma in that graveyard head on by, through activism and empowerment. And that's been a lot of my narrative. In the face of trauma, what do we opt in for? Well, empowerment, because empowerment is sort of the other side of trauma. And I mean, some people sort of say resilience is the other side of trauma. We can kind of bookmark that for a minute. But for me, trauma and narrative have always been sort of one side or the other of the same coin, right? And have been how I've moved through life. Why and how I managed to have as much resilience as I have is in every way a miracle. I mean, I think, you know, I've known many, many more men who are gay or with AIDS that have had much darker stories than I. But I did have a very, very dark few years. I almost died twice. It was very difficult. Um, this is in the early mid 2000s. 
and I'm very public about this. So it's not like you're hearing me say this for the first time. This is my story. I've been living with HIV, you know, for many, many years. And those three or so years I'm talking about that were very, very dark. There was a lot going on there. You know, I'd say it was this kind of gross exaggeration of this imperfectionism narrative that I told you about earlier. But I really felt like I had let myself down, my community down, my career down, my parents down, the legacy of the entire family that died in the Holocaust down. Like, how could I give myself this terminal deadly disease when I was given all these gifts to live and thrive and, you know, here in the United States and in the late 20th century? And then society was feeding us all these negative and horrible messages around people with AIDS being monsters. And and I know I filtered that in. So my illnesses that manifested were in part, of course, because I was living with untreated HIV and AIDS, right? So you, when you have a virus that you're not on medication for, you get sicker and sicker and sicker. But I think that for me, that was also amplified by this traumatic piece that I always kind of point to that was going on in the background of my life that was really becoming the foreground of my life. Mm -hmm. So for a number of years in my 30s, I was like a walking dead person. My life got very, very small. I used to look in the mirror and I used to think you can see a person living with AIDS, you know, who's dying of AIDS. Like that's what I used to see. And if I saw it, I thought everyone else saw it. So I didn't opt in for going out much. You know, I kind of put my career on complete halt for a few years. I did get a job that kind of kept me kind of in the same space. I was very fortunate to have a very supportive boss who also had a partner that was living with HIV. So he kind of understood me and kind of what I was going through. So I had a real friend in my corner there. But yeah, I mean, I was barely, barely surviving for like three years. And I sort of point to that very, very dark period in my life. With no regrets, I learned a lot about myself. I faced a lot of demons. And then eventually at around age 36, I guess, I found myself in the hospital dying in a scary, scary way. And it was a chance to have a personal reconciliation with myself around, Mark, do you want to live or do you want to die? And I chose to live. And that was not in kind of a lights on, lights off kind of decision but I spent like 17 days in the hospital, much of it in an ICU, much of it in isolation, much of it with my family and with you know healthcare professionals around trying to help kind of crowdsource me into some sort of treatment plan and get me on the right path towards you know getting my health back. And as I was very, 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 very sick, I was having, I mean, you know, I'm 36 years old, I'm using a walker. I weighed 142 pounds, okay? That, that is not what I weigh now, right? You know, there was a lot going on. I had every kind of opportunistic infection like on the AIDS list. And when you're living with AIDS and you get very, very sick, there are certain medications that are available to you to kind of do to treat certain kind of what they call opportunistic infections. And I needed to take one that I had a history of being wildly allergic to. So I had to go through this very difficult 48-hour drug desensitization in the ICU where, um, I mean, I can't even describe it. It was horrific. I mean, you're kind of in lockdown on a bed with your arms and legs tied to these kind of motors that are where you're constantly moving and can't sleep. And they're dosing you with more and more of the medication so your body can learn to tolerate it. And the movement is so you won't have blood clots and go into shock, right? And you have a reaction, allergic reaction to it. The big joke was like, I had, you know, this is back in the age of DVDs, right? I had my mother bring in like season three of Will and Grace. And I'm like, let's have a Will and Grace viewing party while I'm like locked down in this crazy machine. And, you know, I mean, not to be overly gross, but you're, you know, you have a bedpan underneath you because part of the allergic reaction is not very pleasant diarrhea, right? 
so this is horrible to even tell you about, but it was so, I was so, 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 so sick. And, and you know what? I made it through that desensitization that I started to tolerate that drug and that drug really started to help me get on a better path. And a few days later, I'm like walking around in my walker. You know, who do you meet in a hospital? People in their 80s and 90s who are sick and at the end of their life. And I'm such a chatty, Kathy kind of guy. Like, I love people. I've always loved older people. I've always had a real affinity for seniors and elders, even as a child. Like, I used to, you know, love it. Love talking to old people, hear their stories, their history, all that. And so I'm going in and out of these rooms, visiting these older people. And, you know, these people are like, honey, what are you doing here? And I'm like, what? You're so young. You're so beautiful. Like, what are you doing here? And I really heard it. Like, what am I doing here? Like, how did I get here? Is this what, you know, my dead grandparents at that point would want for me? Is this what the people who were decimated in the Holocaust would want for me? Like, I have the power to push through this story and change the story. I was here in San Francisco. I was staying in a hospital that had a beautiful view of the city. And I'm like on the seventh floor looking out at my beautiful city. And I'm like, I want to be out there again. You know, I want to be out there living and thriving. There has to be a way to do this. And I knew that there were medications that could get me on a path towards health. I was very fortunate that this was the 2000s and not the 80s. And so I could make the decision to opt in for health or not. And I decided to opt in for health. And here I am, age 53 and um, still living with HIV, but I've been undetectable for many, many years. And undetectable is where you want to be. It means you can't transmit the virus to another person. The viral levels in your blood are so low that they are not risky to anyone else. And you are virtually healthy. My numbers are like, what everyone's numbers, you know, you hope for. (laughs) Um, Sort of funny, the funny benefit of being someone living with AIDS and having that happen to me in my 30s is that I got into care, both physical care and mental care, getting the kinds of help and resources that I needed. And that is a real win for anyone who is male, because as you age as a man, more and more problems emerge, right? So the things that happen to men in their 40s and 50s, I've been right there in the care of a doctor you know, because of HIV and AIDS, being able to address those things well in advance of them ever even happening. So both me and my husband are living with HIV and we're both extremely healthy people. You know, and I think that the the sort of sweet part of what happened was that I made this decision to kind of, you know, re-enter my life in a whole new way with a whole new attitude, a whole new resilience. And my career took off. I mean, it was just on like rocket ships. By 2009, I had started a new film company and I was sort of on a path to kind of what I describe as have a do-over, right? Mm -hmm. So the younger version of me who was wildly successful and was destroyed by that story, really. I mean, you know, part of that fame and visibility really contributed to the sense of self-destruction, you know, that I opted in for when I did find out that I had AIDS. This time I was able to come at my career with a lot more holistic sense of how I wanted to be sort of in this industry that I'm in that is so competitive, that is so, you know, about always, you know, how many awards and how's your box office and how did your film (laughs) perform? And so I came in my career, you know, when I re-entered it in my late 30s, early 40s, it was a completely different story. And I have, you know, I like to say Touchwood been wildly successful the last 13, 15 years because of all those horrible things that happened to me that I learned so much about myself. And then the sort of sweet spot about the AIDS narrative is that in 2009, I, with another filmmaker, we started a nonprofit as kind of a passion project, a side project. It was not a side project, but just so people understand, 
called the HIV Story Project. That was a kind of, you know, an attempt to bring together filmmakers and storytellers and nonprofits who were all interested in telling the story of AIDS, past, present, and future. And as a consequence, like three beautiful films came out of that nonprofit that have been amazing films that have done extremely well in film festivals and distribution and won tons of awards. Um, we did tons of work with nonprofits all over the world. We created an interactive video storytelling booth that resulted in an archive of personal stories from the street, as you say, you know, the grassroots stories, people everywhere who, you know, had a story to tell about their life with HIV, how they've been impacted by HIV. And that archive now lives online and there's like more than 1200 videos, you know, that, that really helps tell the story of AIDS. And that legacy project now is part of something called the National AIDS Memorial. We merged with them all these years later and I've created something to sort of give back to the AIDS community that really helped me rebuild my life when I needed them. There were some nonprofits that were so able to kind of be with me on my journey, facing my traumas head on. So I, I emphasize that because storytelling and filmmaking have been sort of my survival tools, telling my own story, helping other people tell their stories. When you look at the arc of my career, and this was even before I got sick, both before and after, I have always been telling stories that were sort of in the space of trauma. That has been a place I've felt oddly comfortable and oddly able to be there with that discomfort and find a sense of resiliency and empowerment, both in myself and others to really prop up these stories and, and tell them in ways that I think are possible for audiences to receive them. Or as we say now, are trauma-informed, right? And so bringing that trauma-informed approach, which is much more common now than it was some years ago, that was sort of innately how I was tackling these tough stories and how I was innately tackling it in my own personal life, you know, to kind of come at this in ways that, you know, I mean, at one point it was, I was either on the precipice, I either was going to die or I was going to get trauma and born, right? Yeah. I had, mm -hmm. to make, I had to make a decision. And I think people who are on a precipice often make that decision, you know, that kind of choice for themselves. And there are many, many men and others living with HIV who have not survived in part because of the trauma. It's an illness, yes, but it's also the trauma. We continue to lose countless men. I can't, I mean, in my networks alone, there's just way too many men in their 40s and 50s who have passed. And in some instances, it's attributed to HIV, but it's also attributed to lots of other cofactors that come with the trauma of an illness that becomes such a defining part of who you are. So long story short, for your listeners, you know, it's been this whole sort of Holocaust, gay and queer, HIV and AIDS, these three things in my story have really become major parts of how I move through my daily experience and really in, have informed the film projects that I undertake, the kinds of issues and stories and priorities that I lean into as an artist, as an activist, as the sort of ways I want to move through the world. And so I've been thinking about trauma for a long time. And like, there's a certain miraculous aspect to it. Like I, I can't always pinpoint exactly why I'm a survivor. I do know that I have a certain kind of resiliency that I know others lack. And I wish you could put resiliency in a bottle and just dose it out to people and yeah. solve it that way. And it's just not like that. Yeah. Um, some people are beaten up by trauma in ways that you just you see it in their faces, you see it in their bodies, how they move through the world, how they walk, how they talk, you know, how they communicate. 
And my heart goes out to those folks. And I think that there are other aspects of identity, sex, race, class, where you've been born, geography, zip code, that all play into these traumatic aspects of who we are. And all of that intersects with our intelligence. All of that intersects with our giftedness. All of that intersects with our values. If giftedness is an identity, if it's something that we walk through the world with, it will intersect with other aspects of our identities, right? So I can never separate my giftedness from my being queer, from my being Jewish, from my being a child of Holocaust survivors, from my living with HIV and AIDS. Like those are all a part of the same story. Those are intersectional aspects of who I am and how I move through the world as a 50 something at this stage, right? And so once you start to lean into giftedness as an identity concept, it starts to give it real value in ways that I think are important for people to kind of put their giftedness on that playing field with the other aspects of who they are. Because if you can name something with pride, you can start to see a path towards empowerment. This is why LGBTQ pride is so important. Like, why do we insist on this month every year that we want to remind the world that we are here and that we are queer and we're not going anywhere? Because the rest of the year can be kind of hard to be a queer person. And we need that month to come together and focus on each other and ourselves and celebrate who we are. And frankly, every community needs that, right? And so the gifted community needs that. Gifted adults need that. Oh, yeah. You know, that, yeah, in order to push through trauma, you have to find a sense of empowerment and resiliency. And pride in oneself, in one's identities, is a beautiful way to kind of move in that direction. Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you something, you know, very early on, Jennifer, when I was making my movie, The G Word, which we've barely talked about here today, but it's, uh, yes, I'll bring it in here for a, for a yeah. second, is um, there were two wonderful women, Joanna Hossie and Sharon Duncan, who are dear friends of the film and advisors on the film and partners of the film. I went to their presentation here in the Bay Area where I live called The Elephant in the Room right, which was their, it was their presentation about giftedness. And Sharon talked about how she felt like giftedness was the kind of like coming out of the closet for LGBTQ people. And right there, you know, suddenly I'm like, I can be useful here. I know a little something about coming out of the closet and being yeah, LGBTQ exactly. plus, right? And then as I sort of went more and more into it, and I kind of saw that giftedness and neurodiversity are peppered with such deep traumatic narratives for people of all ages and all backgrounds, I started to see that I could be useful in general by way of making this movie. I started to understand that I, as a survivor of trauma, multi-generational or intergenerational, however you want to call it, survivor of collective trauma, I've lost my whole community to AIDS, the LGBT community is constantly targeted, I could be of service here. I have the resiliency to actually be the kind of storyteller because I have a gifted narrative in my entire experience. Yeah, I was a product of gifted education. And I really believe in this identity piece that if you start to understand the different parts of yourself and give them a name and attach them to pride and empowerment, you can persevere. So the G word, if anything, hopes to be useful in that for people. Our movie has stories that are kind of coming out of traumatic spaces for sure, but we're not here to beat you up. I don't want to beat you up. (laughs) That's not fun for anybody, right? So I'm interested in solutions. I'm interested in hope and I'm interested in joy and finding those things through storytelling. Yeah, I mean, it's beautifully put. 
And I think there's something, you know, really interesting about your particular story where in your family, they told the story, like you mm -hmm. were saying, sometimes there are families, they don't talk about it, they keep it hidden. And it shows yep. up in other ways. It shows up in maybe really dysfunctional family dynamics and it doesn't get talked about. And then you don't really know your own story. You don't really know what the collective trauma was. And then what? How do you integrate that into your life? Yeah, you had kind of this perfectionism narrative that came after, but you had enough information that over the years you could integrate this into your sense of identity and into your sense of purpose. Like, why am I here? And even when you, you know, were in the hospital dying and you had to decide to live, all of that informed your narrative. It's sort of a strong counterexample to a lot of the people who don't get that. And I think it is why you can be so useful in this way. I think that points also to this gifted thing where a lot of people didn't talk about giftedness and they didn't talk about giftedness in the family. One of the main things that we ask when we're doing assessments with intergifted is, do you have a history of giftedness in the family? And for a lot of people, it's the first time that anybody's ever asked them or they've ever even thought about it. And it's a really powerful exercise because they realize that for most people, it didn't just come out of nowhere. And just because it wasn't talked about didn't mean it wasn't real. And a lot of times because it wasn't talked about, it caused problems. And so it's, you know, it's a good excuse for me when I'm working with people to say, you can see how not talking about it and not being able to be open about this issue or family members not recognizing it or not knowing about it. You can see how that caused dysfunction because it usually does if it's not recognized, if it's not acknowledged and shared. And so that's a good motivation, right? For you not to continue that family legacy of hiding an aspect of yourself. In your case, you had the advantage of being in the gifted school in the seventies when it was like, well-funded and legitimized and your life story is this really great combination of factors that I think show the best of what it's like to be able to be out and have a family line that talks about it. And you were able to come out as gay and on all of these different levels, it's really inspiring. I mean, it's one of the reasons that I find you so inspiring as well, uh, because, Thank you. Thank yeah, you. because you have this rootedness in the act of coming out about things and being sincere about them. Yeah, I mean, I think that authenticity is really underrated, you know, and I think that we can really do ourselves a huge service around kind of asking ourselves, like, how do we want to express our true authentic selves in the different places in the world that we move through, right? Um, uh, 21st century life in particular is so, it forces us to kind of compartmentalize so much who we are into these different sort of boxes, you know, and we don't get to really kind of bring those pieces together and be these kind of integrated people who are expressing our whole selves as we move through these different spaces. And so I always try to advocate for that. I don't have a lot of secrets as a result. You know, I mean, obviously there are things you don't, we all think we all don't share with others, right? And we get to decide what's public, what's private, what's for friends and family and community only. I mean, all that is sort of in the room, right? But I think in general, like being your authentic self is a beautiful act. It can be a chance for you to curate. That's a word I use a lot. Like curate, who do you want to be in the world? Like you're this, you know, exhibition, right? Of a personhood. <laughs> and think of yourself as like an art show. And how do you want to curate that art show? And how do you want to be in the different spaces that you move through? The other piece of the puzzle that I always remind people in the gifted world and really everywhere is that trauma is the most common shared experience among humans. I do a number of keynotes and talks about trauma and empowerment and giftedness. And one of the things I do is I sort of show, you know, I have a slide up that, you know, I kind of go down 
sort of different things that we know happen in human narratives that are in a very scary way, very, very common. Things like experiences, you know, with war, experiences with domestic violence or community violence, experiences with substance misuse, experiences with life-altering weather events or climate catastrophe. And when I show that slide, I ask for a show of hands, how many of you, this has either happened to you, someone in your family or someone in your immediate networks and all hands go up. And when the hands go up of an entire audience of 500 people and they get to see, oh my God, I am not alone in the fact that I have a military combat veteran in my family or that we've survived community violence. You know, I mean, look at the epidemic of gun violence in this country. It's touching every city, every town, right? So once we understand that we have a shared experience of trauma, we can actually meet each other in those traumatic spaces and start to turn the tables on the conversation into one of resiliency and empowerment. And this is where I I think people start to understand what trauma-informed really means. Like, what does trauma-informed mean? Well, it basically means that if we assume that more often than not, it is likely that every person we're interacting with has had some experience with trauma. So every person that you meet, whether it's through work or school or whatever settings you move through, like think about all that they bring to that moment, right? I just told you, I bring all this traumatic history with, you know, Holocaust and HIV and being gay. You're not going to know that about me when you first interact with me, right? And so think of all the people we ever interact with and all the traumas that they bring to those interactions. We really kind of need to give each other a break. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good way of it. And and take a trauma-informed posture with how we interact with everybody. You know, we, we personalize so much. Most of the time when someone is gaslighting someone else, it's because of their trauma. They have trauma that is unworked out. And the way that it manifests in their behaviors is to gaslight someone else. And so I think that if we can take this sort of empathic approach to that, just daily interaction, we won't personalize things nearly as much. And we might understand that everyone is coming into the room with trauma and unnamed trauma. Most people don't even know what their trauma is. And so, and they haven't taken the time or had the supports or done the deep therapeutic work to really even identify those things. I mean, you talk about unidentified giftedness. I, this was amazing. And I, this happens to me all the time while I'm working on the G word, like I'll open my phone and I'll go on Twitter and somebody posts like one of our short films and says, oh my God, there's a documentary about this topic. I can't wait to see this. And this one woman did this a couple of days ago and I wrote, it's coming soon, hopefully in 2023, XO, just to kind of, you know, engage with her a little bit. And she wrote back and she immediately said, I'm 68 and I just discovered my giftedness recently, you know? And and so, right, to your audience who are gifted adults, who are contemplating their giftedness, whether they're in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, or 70s, or whatever stage of life, it's never too late to identify aspects of who you are and turn them into an empowerment narrative, right? Like, I mean, oh my God, if you're in your 60s and you're still working things out, good on you. Like keep (laughs) doing it. Keep working out who you are and being the best version of yourself because that work in progress that you're constantly, you know, moving forward with is a beautiful expression of humanity. Right. And so I think we also put a lot of pressure on ourselves. Like, 
oh, I'm, I'm a certain age, therefore I should be a certain way and have certain things worked out, like my family and my relationships. And if we if we sort of you know free ourselves from the shackles of everybody else's definition of what it means to be a person in the 21st <laughs> century, we can start to figure out, well, what kind of person do we want to be or what kind of person are we actually, right? And, and I think giftedness is such an interesting sort of manifestation of all of these other aspects of our identities, you know, because I believe strongly that our intelligence is woven into all of them. Your giftedness, if you are queer or Latino or Asian American or African American or whatever identities you're wearing every day, your giftedness interacts with those aspects of yourself and makes it even richer and more involved and more curated. You know, if you can sort of see yourself as a smart, gifted Black person or a smart, gifted gay person or a smart, gifted anything person, I think that's a real wonderful way to kind of challenge everyday assumptions about who we think we're meeting. And yeah. it's not like you have to walk into a room and say, hi, my name is Mark and I'm gifted. Like this isn't an AA meeting, <laughs> right? But you need to know who you are when you walk in that room and understand that it manifests. And you're allowed to love yourself. You're allowed to be confident in who you are and what you bring to the room. And these are not messages that most people get growing up unless they come from certain kinds of families and certain kinds of privilege. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it makes me think of, you know, this authenticity word, because a lot of times that gets misinterpreted as my best self, you know, a lot of this um, sort of solopreneur authenticity stuff. I think it's kind of gaslighting sometimes where it's like tells you that authenticity looks like that you feel great all the time and, you know, that you're just living your best life. And I love in your story, it's clear that it's not just like every day is like you said, showing up and being like, Hey, I'm mm-hmm. Mark and I'm gifted. It's not, you know, that's, part of it, but it's not just that and showing up as only the best self, but it's the whole range of things. All of the, yeah, identity, yeah. Including the collective trauma, including whatever, also personal traumas. And that's also not to say, okay, because sometimes people take that too far and then they over identify with the trauma and they forget the empowerment part. And so then they identify as like a chronic victim and they forget that there's also, you know, stuff to be done. But then that points to the other thing that came to mind while you were talking is like, in order to really be authentic, you really need the resources for processing who you are. And like in your story, it's interesting to me because part of the time when you discovered you had AIDS and then you were kind of, can I say in denial about it? Like kind of just not wanting to yeah, take it. But yeah. you, I mean, that came after this collective trauma and personal trauma, I'm sure, of losing a lot of your community. And like you said, not having, you know, queer elders to... Mm-hmm go and talk to because a lot of them had died. And it, it kind of points to that resources question. Like how could you have been authentic with your HIV when you already were like having this trauma about losing a bunch of resources that could have helped you to process it. So sometimes we go like, what's wrong with me that I'm not able to blah, blah, blah. Like I'll have people that say to me, well, what's wrong with me that I can't just incorporate my giftedness or integrate my gifted identity. I'm having so much trouble. Something's wrong with me. And I'll say, who's around you that supports it? well, not my partner. They say that it's stupid that I have to look into this stuff or not my boss because they say I'm being too arrogant or whatever. And so I'm like, well, you know, if I'm the only person that's supportive to your giftedness at this point, you don't have enough resources. Yes, I'm a specialist in this. And yes, I do good work. But I mean, I'm one human being that serves a huge community of people. So like, you know, I'm a good start, but I'm not the the full package. And that's always important for people to remember because if you have a lot of denied giftedness in the family line, for example, 
and you go to your parents and say, oh, I found out I'm gifted. It's not likely that they go, oh, great. I'm so glad you're finding that out. We want to know more about ours too. Let's investigate this as a family. You know, it's probably more like you're going to get some more denial. Yeah, yeah. But every kid wants to think they're special or we don't want to show people that we're arrogant. So we don't want to talk about that in our family. These reasons that, that it's really difficult. And as gifted education takes its hits in the US, for example, it becomes more and more difficult also to be legitimized in, in the educational field. And so it's like everybody needs support to really be authentic with all of the different identities because the identities should be always in flux. They're always dynamically evolving. It's not like, okay, I know who I am today and then I'm going to be that for the rest of all time. <laughs> like, no, I mean, each yeah. identity um, evolves, but they evolve for the better or for, I don't want to say better or worse, but you know, they evolve more in a healthy, integrative way when we have the resources and the support to be able to do that. We're not an island, you know, and they, they kind of devolve and get confused and stuck when we don't have those resources. So I think that's important for people to hear as they're listening, because we, you talked about expectations kind of throughout your story, self-expectations that you had, you know, and a lot of people have these ones that are just, you know, it, it, they can't reach that with the current support they have. So a lot of times I'm working with people not on integrating their giftedness right now. I'm working with them on getting enough support around that giftedness can even be a thing in their life to start out with, you know, like that they can even just talk about it a little bit. And then we build on that. And then eventually the integration becomes almost like, you know, emergent. It's like organic. It's natural. Of course it happens when you have enough support around, but so many of us don't think that. I mean, I think for me, what I try to lean into and encourage others to think about is that the journey towards your authentic self is not a linear one, right? You're not going from point A to point B. It's just not like that. I mean, so often life is about taking two steps forward, three steps back, eight steps forward, six steps back, 25 steps forward, huge amount of steps back. And there is ebb and flow. And, and if you think of the visual of the continuum, I see it more like a pendulum. You know, it's really sort of like you're swinging from side to side through life. And it's not like if you work through trauma, that suddenly trauma is gone from your experience, right? Most of these aspects of who we are and our identities and our experience sort of seep in and they sort of sneak through and they kind of catch us off guard in our most unexpected vulnerable moments. And you know, that's where resiliency is. It's like a well that if you don't refuel, right, you're not able to sort of be empowered in the face of those challenging moments when, you know, suddenly you are caught off guard and you're like, wow, I'm, that trauma is, you know, hitting me in the face again today. And it's not like I worked all this age shit out, excuse my French, but, you know, um, it does wear its ugly head from time to time and it can be quite difficult, but I've developed the tools, the resiliency in this sort of model of continuums, you know, where I don't expect myself to be perfect. And I've embraced my imperfectionism in ways that feel more like they're on this continuum of experience and certain days are better than others. I mean, for me, I mean, I'm very much happy to go on record. Like I am in therapy. I have a therapist. Like I have someone that I can talk to. Now it's monthly. You know, at times it's been weekly for sure. But right now it's monthly. And I see it almost like going to the gym. You know, I'm exercising a muscle that is in the benefit of my mental health. And if I don't exercise it, if I don't carve out that time, like going to the gym or doing exercise, I won't do it and it won't happen, right? The fact that I'm doing it once a month, it kind of speaks to my level of wellness and 
self-care right now, like touch wood, I'm doing well. And I don't feel I need to be in therapy every week, but some people need therapy more than once a week where they need to carve out mental health and wellness time throughout the week and schedule it. So it's always there. Yeah. It's part of their routine. And that's how they learn to integrate those ways of moving through life. And they need a lot of it, right. In order to feel empowered, to have that resiliency factor working in their favor. And if I needed to pivot into more frequent therapy, I would, because I just know myself enough that I reap the benefits when I'm going through challenging times, you know, and I think, you know, we don't put enough emphasis on self-care and self-efficacy and kind of find those things that help us achieve that sense of, oh yeah, like I, I recognize this situation. This is what works for me in that situation to feel better or feel empowered. And I think that we have so much coming at us in the 21st century, so much news, so much information, so much trauma, 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 trauma. You're a human being. We're all affected by that. One thing I didn't talk about earlier and this was very apparent in my childhood, the sort of ways that my giftedness manifested. I've talked a lot about those kind of positive, like extroverted attributes, like being, you know, leadership, the arts, those kinds of things. Something that really is a huge part of my giftedness is living with intensity. When I discovered Susan Daniel and kind of read her book and mm-hmm. while I was developing the G word, I was like, that's me. Like I'm that intense person. I'm an extremely intense person, sometimes so intense that other people are, you know, I always joke that like, like eight out of 10 people love me, two out of 10 people really don't. <laughs> and the two out of 10 people like who with don't. The, with the overexcitability. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, the two out of 10 people who really don't love me are, it's because of my intensity. I'm a lot for them to, you know, receive. In most instances, it manifests in these really positive ways that are very about sort of being extroverted and able to be public and be affirming. But of course, these negative ways kind of also seep into how those things roll out of our daily experience. And as being an imperfect person, like my intensities rear their ugly head at times. And one thing that I've always done, and this really kind of the most extreme version of this with the AIDS narrative is noticing those intensities and really pulling them in and not wanting to share them with the world. And then going into these kind of darker spaces where it's so unhealthy for me. And when intensities are manifesting in those kinds of ways, like I shut down and I become like a person who lies in bed for a day and I don't beat myself up with that stuff. It still happens even at this stage of my life. And I've just learned to kind of roll with it. And I think that people who are listening to this podcast, if they can sort of take anything away They need to be reminded that they are not alone in these struggles. Like everyone is struggling. It is like the most normal expression of humanity in the 21st century to be struggling. And our job together is to reinforce and remind one another communally that we share that experience and that we can also be okay in the face of those experiences. And I think that gifted people have a lot of, you know, internal pressures around even allowing themselves to feel joy. You know, and that is something we have to talk about openly as a gifted community. If we are a community, then we have to support each other to find that sense of joy, that sense of empowerment, that sense of beauty in who we are. And if we can't do that for one another, if all it is is trauma, then why are we even in a community? I think it's, you know, like, like find communities that where joy can be, you know, a shared interest, a shared goal. That feels important to me. One of the things I've I've been so impressed by in the gifted community as I've been making the movie about giftedness is that people are really on board that healing narrative in all kinds of spaces, whether it's education or mental health or advocacy or wherever I might encounter people who are trying to do the good work of helping the gifted. 
there is a real sense of we can do this better and that we deserve it. And once you kind of get people who are struggling into that sense of a communal narrative, like you're not alone, we're all working this out together. And guess what? We're actually in much larger numbers than we ever realized. And that sort of sense of community, that sense of shared experience is what creates opportunities for people to see themselves on a different trajectory. And that's what you've done with Intergifted. You've helped gifted adults everywhere feel that they're not alone and that they have a reason to feel like they're a part of something that's bigger than themselves. And thank goodness for the 21st century's ability to help people feel that connection. I do think that the internet and social media are ultimately a win for us as a planet because we have that interconnectedness. We can have access to information that can help us learn about ourselves and see ourselves and connect with others who are like ourselves. But of course, we know there's a lot of negative effects of all that too, right? And so with everything that is good, there's always bad and everything in between. What I will say is that where I think things are most interesting is in between. <laughs> I'm a real believer in non-binary expressions of life and experience. That's why I love non-binary people and the whole they, them movement and rethinking pronouns, because I feel like that really is how humanity works. And it's our language and a lot of our institutions that have forced us into these binary structures that are so limiting for the human experience. And so often it isn't black or white. Most of us live in those gray zones or what I call liminal spaces yeah. where really, really interesting things happen to us. And that's where the most meaningful connections are made. That's where the most lasting relationships unfold. I really, really believe that. And it can be so freeing to even just contemplate a non-binary way of thinking about the world and language. I think that the reason why the gender non-binary and trans movement is so threatening to people is because it's really kind of pushing that button, challenging everything we thought we ever knew about experience. But I think the reason why it's resonating with so many young people, certainly even with kids and, and tweens, is that it's actually a very natural expression of kind of how those things in identity really work. And I, I love it. I think it's the most empowering thing happening in, in identity, you know, in the 21st century. I think it really, it's such an expression of, of authenticity and the data speaks for itself. I mean, like queer non-binary people are the fastest growing number of people in the United States who are self-identifying in that with those words, any other, any other group. Right. Mm -hmm. And well, why is that happening? Because people are starting to see themselves in a different way. And when you see yourself in a different way, you embrace yourself in a different way, you know? And I just think that, you know, we can model different types of gifted behaviors and just in the gifted community in ways that don't make people feel like they have to be put so heavily into one box or the other. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think gifted people, I mean, you know, we can have a whole other podcast about why there's so many trans and non-binary gifted folks. Right. But it, by way of example, it sort of speaks to how identity works and mm -hmm. Identity is nuanced. Um, identity is complicated. Identity lives in, lives in those liminal spaces where really interesting stuff happens. And if you can be okay in those spaces, even if it's uncomfortable, there's something really special that could happen to you there. And having been near death myself a couple of times, I've been in some pretty dark spaces and I've come out of them. And I could really want to assure your listeners, you can come out of those dark spaces and you can actually be okay. And you can actually look back on those dark times and make a lot of sense of why they happened to you and why you were there. Like I always say, no regrets about what happened to me in my thirties. I needed to go through that. And thank goodness I didn't die. And thank goodness I figured out how to survive because a lot of people don't. Yeah. And we know that and we see that all the time, right? But given that I have, I'm on a journey to keep doing right by those who supported me and give back to my communities. And 
You know, I mean, I always say like the best thing that anyone can do for yourself is volunteer somewhere, get involved in your community. Like if you're struggling, show up somewhere and help out someone else. <laughs> it really is just simple. Like it just, certain chemicals in your brain are released when you volunteer. When you show up to do something altruistic, you will be doing the most altruistic thing for yourself. I know that it has very little to do with giftedness, like directly, well, but, but it's, just, the, it's sort of, there, I mean, there is please. a gifted version of it. And I, I say it all the time, especially to the coaches and therapists that attend my trainings is like, yes. since you know about this, pay it forward. I mean, obviously it's since they're training with me, they're going to be doing this in their practice, but I'm like, right. Do leadership speak out about these things because in any minority community, it's not just about oh, good, I learned about myself. Good, I got what I needed. Thanks, bye. It's about then giving back and spreading the good word and building community and being a mentor, being an elder. For me, that was super important when I figured out the giftedness thing because I could say in some ways, my giftedness rediscovery came after a period of trauma where I was trying to fit into the regular world, just wasn't working, you know? Then I rediscovered this and it was so helpful it made all the pieces fall into place or at least enough that I started to feel like a more coherent being. And then I thought, well, naturally I want to help other people that are maybe struggling with the things I was struggling with. I want to speak about this. You know, this is important to talk about. And so I always do say to anybody who learns about their giftedness, don't just sit there with that knowledge in your house and never talk about it to anybody okay, don't chase after people who don't want to know about it and, you know, yeah. them over the head with it, but be available for other people. And I've been really grateful over the seven years now that we've had our intergifted community to see so many people grow into that leadership, you know, and whatever that version is, it's not, not, it's not the same for everybody. For some people, it's just reaching out here and there, supporting the younger people, supporting people who are new to the discovery. Like, I'm so impressed. There are some people who, anytime there's somebody new, they're almost like the welcome committee, you know? Everybody has their different role. Yeah, there is definitely a gifted version of that, like pay it forward, build the community. Yeah, don't just be a, a receiver and then then ciao, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I mean, well, what do we, what do, we do with that self-awareness, right? If we understand ourselves to be something, well, we have to channel that into something, right? We have to actually do something with it in order for it to move our lives forward. And that's where becoming involved in community is, you know, such a critical part of building on this sort of path to the more authentic self. I mean, the more authentic self, as we uncovered today, is really about honoring those liminal spaces that aren't a linear trajectory from like bad to good, right? Like you're always going to be in a more circular, virtuous journey with yourself, yeah. <laughs> you know, as you kind of move forward in your life. And I think that what you've done with inner gifted and what we see happening in different areas of the gifted world are these kind of sub communities where people are organizing together to create connection. And some of it's local, depending on how they roll locally, or some of it's national, some of it's international, some of it's online. We see a vast, diverse network of people embracing these concepts and topics because it resonates with them. And I think that the number of people who are engaged says a lot about what's going on. I mean, you don't have like hundreds and hundreds of people involved in Intergifted because there's not something going on, right? There's really something going on. And we have to just, you know, understand that nascent communities are finding the words to describe ourselves. And that's what I really try to highlight for people around like 
if you're having trouble communicating to your family or your friends or your coworkers or whatever about your giftedness, because it's such a loaded word, hence why I called the movie the G word, then maybe you need to think about, well, what other words will help describe who you are and make it more clear to people that will keep them in the conversation. And that can feel a little tricky sometimes, like, oh, I just decided I'm gifted or I understand that I'm gifted and now I'm not supposed to call myself that. Well, you know, let me make a point. I love to use the word queer and it communicates who I feel I am, sometimes much more than the word gay. I mean, it's kind of interchangeable for me in a lot of ways. The word queer came out of a time in the evolution of the LGBTQ community, whereby we decided to reclaim a derogatory word that everyone used to hurt us. But more than that, it also was a word that reflected a certain view of the political realities that we faced, Mm -hmm. in part informed by the AIDS crisis, but in part informed by the fact that we wanted to create community around all different types of non-procreative expression of sexuality. You could actually be straight, dare I be so bold, in a heteronormative (laughs) relationship or marriage or partnership and still be queer, right? Because your sexual practice may not be of the mainstream or even your ideas about identity, you know, and sexual identity and gender identity in particular might lean into being more comfortable in these other spaces. You know, now we have other new words like, you know, polysexual or pansexual. And, and these are all great words and I love them all. And, and young people are embracing different things for different reasons. There's some people who don't like the word bisexual. That's a whole other conversation for another podcast. But the word queer was chosen and embraced by a large number of us because of its inclusive nature and because it could describe so many things. But guess what? There are a lot of LGBT people out there who hate the word queer because it makes them feel nervous and it makes them feel targeted. And it makes them feel uneasy still. And from all age groups. So, you know, I think that gifted is that kind of word. It's a word that's loaded. It's a word that's complicated. It's never going to be stripped of those complicated meanings. So the onus is on us to come up with other words around that word to help us talk about these concepts in ways that keep people in the conversation. You know, I always talk about my movie or all of my movies, but this movie in particular, like a room. And I want the room to be welcoming and warm with open doors unlocked. You don't need a key. The windows are open. The light's coming in. And how do we keep you in the room? Because there's always going to be differing ideas about this thing called giftedness. That's one thing we can all agree on is that if you talk to 100 people about the word gifted, you're going to get 100 different answers, right? And we have to be thoughtful about that, be okay with that complexity, and actually realize that that complexity is a strength. And let it be a strength-based concept for us. And if that means it takes a few more minutes to explain, <laughs> you know, so dear mom and dad who don't believe that I'm gifted, let me explain <laughs> you what I mean by that. And even if you are 68 years old and figuring it out for the first time, right? Yeah. Like what a pleasure to actually find words to describe your experience. Like that is the most empowering piece of this whole effort to kind of combat trauma is to actually put words to our experience so we don't sit in trauma all the time and can be able to share our experience with others and find points of common interest and common ground to create community. That's the job of the work of community in any community um, is to find common ground together to push us all forward together. Yeah. And there's like a bit of a meta level there just with what you're saying on language and this multiplicity of ways of experiencing and describing giftedness is like it's a whole gifted label. It comes a lot from this IQ background and, you know, IQ testing has a really scary and horrible background. That's also linked. I mean, some of it's good and some of it's linked to horrible, horrible things like eugenics. 
And we want to talk about collective traumas and intergenerational traumas. There's like a whole background. There's a great book. I'll add it into the show notes called um, Superior. And it's, the subtitle is The Return of Race Science. And it's a, yeah, mm. it tells kind of the whole story. She's a great writer. She tells the whole story of, you know, how IQ became the thing. And that sort of tried to put everybody in this one thing is gifted. And it's usually like white men with access to higher education, or at least they're the ones that get legitimized. You know, so we're coming out of that as a community. And gifted is a loaded word. And sometimes I, you know, at the beginning of my work with it, I thought maybe I find another term because of, you know, of that and other reasons. And I thought, you know what? No, like I'm like you with queer, like I embrace the term gifted. Yeah, it does have some nasty history and we can rewrite that. And I think that points to our whole theme of this discussion. Absolutely. 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 But like history continues to write itself. And in some of the resources that I'm going to give, there's a book called, hold on, let me tell you, because I never remember book titles, so I wrote it down. It's called, It Mm -hmm. Didn't Start With You. And then there's like a subtitle that's like, but you can, you can change it or something like that. And it's the idea that we come into the middle of a story, the middle of a collective narrative. And our personal narrative gets woven into that collective narrative. And what we do, every choice we make, steers that narrative in some direction or another. And the power of community is that when we are working together with all of our different strengths and perspectives, we can have a lot of power steering that collective narrative. But if we're each sitting there totally overwhelmed by our collective trauma or just ignoring it, and I think some of the individualism of the US in the last, let's say 30 years has been problematic. Some of it's been great, but some of it's been problematic in that it has kind of divorced people from their memory, their collective memory. And there's like kind of a term that I hear around in the ecological circles, which is, something like collective amnesia or community amnesia, as if you're born today and then today the world started and I get to just be whatever, like even this idea of a meritocracy, like as long as I have grit and I work really hard, then I can just kind of come out of nowhere and then become what society tells me is great. And I think this points back to your comments on the non-binary option being attractive to people, especially young people, because I mean, I'm 41, so I'm not super young, but I'm very young at heart, and I never wanted to fit into the classic model of what success was. Like when people would say, okay, yeah, that's where you're supposed to go. I think, yeah, but I mean, life is so much bigger than that. Like, what do I care about, you know, being at the top and having all the awards? Like, I just couldn't care less about all of that, but I do care about all of this other stuff. But that all of that other stuff wasn't legitimized and, you know, revered in the same way. So it makes me think to this power of community and the power of the individual really being aware of where they're born into. You did not fall off a tree. You were born into a family line that has biological consequences on your own narrative and it has environmental consequences on your own narrative. So like some of the stuff we're talking about today is in the DNA, it's in the genetic transfer, but some of it is the epigenetic transfer as well. And that means that it's not directly toward the DNA, but it's toward how the environment helps your genes to express what is in the DNA. You're born into a story. We're all born into a story. And then what do we do? How do we contribute to that story? How do we contribute to where that collective story goes? And depending on where you're born, you might not be able to move things as fast as you would like. And it might be some of the collective stuff and then personal stuff might be really painful at times, but you're a life force. So there is still something to do, but you're a a stronger 
and more informed life force when you connect with community and when these themes are available to be talked about. You know, there's kind of the old, uh, I'll call it a stereotype of like, you know, the IQ only model and people just being like, basically, I fell out of a tree and I have an IQ of 160 or whatever. And so I'm supposed to win all the prizes. But that's not actually the reality. You were born in a family line. You were born in a community. And so then the question becomes, well, what do you do with that giftedness? And how do you talk about the context of that giftedness? Where is it in context? And I think in these communities, like in Intergifted, it's important that we, you know, we, we talk about trauma. Sometimes people are like, oh my God, you guys talk about trauma a lot. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, 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 I mean, not, we don't like hyper-focus on it, but we also don't ignore it. And since, like you said, who is not facing some kind of trauma right now? Like collectively with the climate emergency, we are in a collective trauma and like the breakdown of political systems and the war in Ukraine. I mean, there's so much going on collectively right now, and we need to be able to talk about those things and talk about where our giftedness and our, our gifted story, our individual story and our community story is woven into that and how we're contributing to leading the collective somewhere. So yeah, I think it's very empowering when we take on this point of view, but then I'll go back to what I said before. We have to have the resources and we have to be plugged in. We have to be Absolutely. telling a community Absolutely. story. It's not just my story. It's my story within the community of people that can support me and who I can support in return. I think that the gifted community is a beautiful set of communities. Um, it's not monolithic. There's lots of points on the map where people can find points of entry and connection. And I see it every day. You know, I'm making the movie about these topics. And we've created a large network of international partners that are engaged on these issues and topics and understand why they're important. And so to your point about resources, your listeners, if you're struggling and feel unconnected, there are resources out there. There are so many people, professionals, groups, nonprofits, advocacy groups, schools, podcasts, ways of finding information and points of connection. And you just have to avail yourself to being proactive to those opportunities because they're out there. This is an extremely empowered and organized set of communities and welcoming and they want you to show up and the door is open. And I've seen that. I've been working on this movie for years. And I mean, I like to think we've contributed to it and we've kind of, you know, put some scaffolding in place to help people know where to connect and how to connect and connect with each other. So I definitely encourage people to go to our website and sort of look at our partnership roster and see who's there, look at our advisors and see who's there. I think it's a beautiful curated snapshot of some of those resources that might be available. But at the end of the day, if you don't knock, no one's going to answer the door, you know? And so you cannot sit in your trauma alone forever. Otherwise you'll be stuck there and you can read lots of books. You can talk to your therapist. You can work on yourself behind the scenes outside of the public view of things, but getting into community and getting into interaction with others is really the way to heal. And I've seen that time and again in my life. And I really encourage anyone out there who's listening to my voice on this podcast today who may be struggling with giftedness and trauma, that the way to resiliency and empowerment is through connecting with community. And, you know, I don't care how introverted you are, you know, <laughs> that may be your center. You may be an introvert, but every introvert has an extroverted side. And every extrovert has an introverted side. Don't see yourself as in this binary of, of one or the other. See yourself as a whole person on a continuum of extrovert and introvert and reach out to people and reach out to like-minded people and ask your therapist or coach for those kinds of referrals because they're out there and they're out there in large number. 
And when you do find those points of connection, you will put yourself on a path to gifted joy. Joy in the face of trauma is ultimately where I hope we all can find ourselves landing, you know, as we work through this stuff together. Beautifully said. And on that theme, we are working together behind the scenes on a project for the Gifted, Talented and Neurodiverse Awareness Week for the G Word film. So uh, all of you stay tuned. We're going to be talking about finding and experiencing gifted joy. To be continued in late October of 2022. Yeah. And uh, anybody who's listening that wants to find out more information or sign up to get updates on that, you can go to the G Word film website, which I will link to. I will also put a few people that I think are worth looking into for these Mm -hmm. themes. So one is Gabor Mate, who kind of takes a medical model that's kind of half medical, half uh, psychological, where he's talking about collective trauma and intergenerational trauma and how that affects mental health, physical health. And then there's Terrence Real, who is in the U.S. He's a psychologist. He talks about how intergenerational trauma shows up, especially for men, in romantic relationships and family relationships very powerful stuff. And then from a more spiritual perspective, there's Thomas Hubel in Germany, who talks about collective trauma and how we heal collectively from collective trauma. And then I mentioned the book, It Didn't Start With You. That's from Mark Wolin. He's also a psychologist. And then there's another therapist, Resma Manakin. And she wrote My Grandmother's Hands, which is about racialized trauma in the U.S. And I've had so many people tell me how touching it's been for them and how it opened their eyes to what does it mean to go through racialized trauma in the U.S. and the collective trauma that so many Black Americans go through. I'll also put on the website of Valerie Copping, who is the founder of the Intergenerational Trauma Treatment Model. She does like trainings for therapists and coaches to learn how to work with these themes. So lots of resources. Is there anything else you would add to the list? I will share that if you're in the United States and you want to watch a movie uh, on Apple TV, one of the films I produced is called Buried Above Ground. And it is a film about PTSD. And I think it's quite lovely, like sort of three portraits of folks who are survivors of PTSD and kind of how they push through. One is a survivor of domestic violence and lifelong substance misuse. One is a survivor of Hurricane Katrina. And one was a survivor of the Iraq war. And his story has a service dog that's really sweet and inspiring. And so that's one film that I've made that I think can really be applicable to this podcast. But I also think that all of my films are applicable in that sense because they're all embedded in these traumatic landscapes of trying to find hope in the face of trauma. So I think my work can surprise people as they kind of investigate what I've been doing over the last 10 or 15 years as a, as a producer or director is is that we can find empowerment in these difficult places and spaces where we obviously reside every day. Yeah, and you become a master at talking about these things and telling them in the form of film and other ways. So thank you for that contribution. And lastly, I will mention that our coach Fabienne at Intergifted, she offers biography coaching, which is a really powerful process of putting to words your story and looking at the intergenerational, looking at the personal trauma themes and also the resilience and the resources that you have and finding, you know, this way of of working through it together with a gifted guide. Beautiful. A huge thanks to you, Mark, for joining me here and having this really important discussion for the gifted community. My pleasure, my total treat. Can't wait to see you again soon. Thank you so much. Thanks to our listeners for joining us for this conversation. As a reminder, you can go to intergifted.com slash 
conversations-gifted-trauma for the show notes and the links to all the resources that we've mentioned in this episode. And you can also go to intergifted.com slash gifted-community to find more about the intergifted community and see if you'd like to join us. If you're a gifted adult learning about your giftedness, or if you've known about your giftedness for a long time, and you'd like to connect with other gifted adults on their own giftedness integration journey, we'd be happy to have you with us. So until next time, thanks for listening.